time now for our regular edition of The Pick and we have a couple of fabulous guests with tips for you in terms of what to read, watch and listen to in the very broad framework of foreign affairs, politics and history. This month we're joined by Alexi Bragantz. Alexi's the winner of this year's New South Wales Premier's Australian History Prize for his book French Connection in which he delves into the place that France and French culture had in Australia from 1850 to the First World War. Congratulations and welcome, Alexi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Lisa Singh is the CEO of the Australia India Institute. It's an organisation that's dedicated to forging stronger relations between the two countries. Very timely, I would have thought. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Geraldine. Now, you've recently returned from the Australia-India Leadership Dialogue in New Delhi, uh, a a sort of informal diplomatic and business meeting uh, modelled, I presume, on the Australia-US Dialogue. And your listening tip is a very interesting conversation from that event. Absolutely. And you're right, Geraldine, our Australia-India Leadership Dialogue is modelled on the Australia-American Leadership Dialogue. Um, Look, we, yeah, we had a a fascinating discussion during the lunch event of the dialogue. I mean, the dialogue itself is under Chatham House rule, but the lunch event was not. And hence, I can share with you um, a podcast we've created out of that lunch event between the co-founder and uh, co-CEO of um, Australia's tech company Atlassian, which is Mike Cannon-Brooks, with a very round Indian journalist of the Hindu, Sahasini Haider. And, you know, their discussion was really about Mike's passion for investing in renewable energy. So drawing on the urgency to invest in renewable energy and this passion of Mike's, it's it's certainly a really interesting listen because it really highlights for him, why there is an urgency to decarbonise and, of course, how our two countries, Australia and India, can work together to achieve net zero emissions targets. So I very much recommend that. And what's it actually called? What's the podcast called? It's called Investing in Renewable Energy from Passionate Perspective from Mike Cannonball. But, I mean, is is it Australia India Institute? Absolutely, yes. So we've got our own podcast channel. So it's the Australia India Institute's podcast. Oh, well, that sounds terrific, I must say. Um, And well received, by the way. Oh, absolutely well received. I think in sense, you know, it's a bit enlightening to see how both of our countries are really working hard to to decarbonise. I think the two takeaways for me from this podcast, without giving it all away, is the fact that Mike really addresses Australia's responsibility to cut carbon emissions by looking at India's. So, you know, Australia's population, he says, is, you know, close to Mumbai's population, but Australia's carbon emissions are about 50% of India's emissions, which means per capita carbon carbon emissions in Australia are about 40 times higher. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of Australians don't see India in that sense and the other component he really draws on, in instead of us as a country being the primary exporter of fossil fuels, it's time for Australia to really start thinking about ourselves as an energy exporter. Mm. So some really important takeaway messages, but also lots in there about opportunities for how through cutting edge technology we can actually 
reach these net zero emissions targets that both of our countries have signed up to. Very interesting. And Alexi, you have a recommendation that relates to a Frenchman, Lucien Henri, who was a young Republican, this is such a story, in the 19th century in France, and he ends up in Sydney as an escaped convict. What a tale. Yes, no, it's a fascinating story. Uh, the Listening Part is a podcast that was on ABC Hindsight uh, about this Frenchman who's become much more well-known in maybe the past decade or so, but I think that he should be still better known because he's left quite a mark on Sydney life uh, and the art scene. So Lucien Henry was uh, sent to exile to New Caledonia after the Paris Commune in 1870-71. Uh, along with another, I think, 4,000 communards. But after a general amnesty, when most of them in 1879 went back to France, he went to Sydney, where he lived for a couple of decades with his wife, Juliette Rastoul, who herself was a bit of a, a prominent intellectual figure in Sydney society, holding literary events and so on. And incidentally, the couple lived in a very small house on Victoria Street in Potts Point, which is now a backpacker's hotel. And when I moved to Sydney initially, I lived on that very street as well. Oh, that's lovely. Right. (laughs) He was responsible, uh, you tell us, for the magnificent stained glass windows of the Sydney Town Hall. That's right. So very few of his works are still on display today. Uh, I was recently at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and when you're in the main foyer, you can see one of his paintings so it's this beautiful painting of a big lush warata in an ornate vase. And that's quite a good example of his work because he was a very strong advocate of using Australian flora and fauna into his designs. It was a bit of a pioneer in doing that. Um, so that's part of his influence on Australian art and design. And the other example, like you mentioned, uh, of his of his artwork still on display are those two massive stained glass windows at the Sydney Town Hall. One of them is an allegory of New South Wales represented as a young woman wearing, uh, wearing ram horns on her head to, to symbolise the provenance of the colony's wealth. Uh, and of course, being a French Republican it's, and, you know, and having participated in the socialist commune, we can see parallels between that figure of New South Wales with the French Marianne, the allegory of the French nation which is also personified as a young woman. My goodness. Well, uh, look, you can hear a documentary uh, on this very network produced by Hindsight some time ago, so we'll put the link on the Saturday Extra website, and I do intend to go to that, Alexi. Uh, Could we head to the screen next? And, Lisa, you're recommending the World War II drama Operation Mincemeat. Let's hear a little from the film. It's 1943. We have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. Given the fascist network there, we could quite literally float the documents right into enemy hands. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. The plan is highly implausible. So when can it be ready? It's quite a romp, isn't it, this film? Um, Why did you choose this movie, apart from the fact that it stars Colin Firth? (laughs) Well, actually, Geraldine, well, yes, one could say that, but I was actually um, on my plane ride back from Delhi to Australia and this was just happened to be on the plane. So it was purely through choice of what was available. But I have to say it's quite a... 
a light-hearted, fun take on on the whole. It's true, though. It's a true story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's actually based also on Ben McIntyre's book, The True Spy Story That Changed the Course of World War II. But, yeah, look, it's set in World War II. It's, you know, away from the battlefields, though, and in the basement floor of a London building where, you know, a deception operation against sort of World War II has played out to disguise the 1943 Allied invasion of Sicily with these two UK intelligence officers, one being played by Colin Firth and the other by Matthew McFadden, who plan to trick the Nazis into diverting where they are bombing through a planted dead body that they dress up as a captain (laughs) with classified documents that suggest that they were actually planning to invade Greece. All, of course, with the approval of Winston Churchill. So, you know, it was it was good. It also had, of course, a little bit of a love story thrown in for good measure. Which wasn't necessary, <laughs> quite honestly, I thought. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit cheesy, I thought, that part. But, you know, the story in itself is quite a fascinating one. For me, though, this film reminded me of The Imitation Game. Uh, you know, was obviously that was about Alan Turing's Turing. mathematical mm. feat in cracking the Nazi code. But I think that, you know, they're two distinct battles that are being played out, both with strategy and stuff going on on the ground. So, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a bad film. It was fun. Uh, I agree. And, 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 you know, I just anything that Ben McIntyre is at the base of is usually <laughs> worth it. Yeah, I agree. Now, Alexi, you take us into a different genre in terms of what to watch with The Wheel of Time and an adaptation of a best-selling fantasy book series. Now, what is it about and, and why do you like it? That's right. So it might be a bit of a left-off-centre choice for your show, but so The the Wheel of Time is a story or it's a book series that follows a woman called Moraine who is a member of the Aes Sedai, a very powerful organization of women who can channel the one power. So you can think of that as as chi or the magic of the universe. So women have power, men do not. In the book, uh, Moraine tries to find a person, male or female, who is going to be the reincarnation of the dragon. Uh, So the dragon was an extremely powerful channeler who in eons past broke the world. The new dragon, the dragon reborn, is prophesied to either save the world from a primordial evil known as the Dark One or break it again. Mm. Now, I know this is sci-fi and fantasy. Um, As a historian, what I find interesting, and look, to be honest, I'm a big nerd. I just love sci-fi and fantasy and (laughs) I'm not trying to justify myself. But if I put my historian hat on, what I love about this show is how it plays with notions of time and really challenges our understanding of time as unilinear. The story is set in what looks like a middle age ish world, but quickly you realize that because the dragon broke the world, humans were who were far more advanced than we are now were set back thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So that's our idea of progress thrown out the window. Uh, and that, in a sense, is important when we're facing a climate collapse. You know, oh, we need to rethink smart. we need to rethink our narrative about where we headed urgently. Um, in the West, we're also used in thinking about time as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, so there's a narrative to a story, to a life, and to history. Um, But again, with the climate crisis, this is problematic because we're too ready to accept that we are nearing the end. Um, So I think it is creating a sense of apathy uh, in, in the face of climate collapse. And that's really only one way of thinking. You know, obviously in many Asian cultures, time is seen as cyclical. So the Wheel of Time as a, as a TV show, as a book series, 
you know, even the, even the title is a clue. It borrows heavily from Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism because it's about finding and restoring balance, not once but through the ages. So it's a process rather than an end. Oh well, look here is Wheel of Time. I didn't choose this path, but I will follow it. Where next? The two rivers. The old blood runs deep in those mountains. Let's hope it's prepared them for what's coming. The dark one is waking. Oh, goodness. Yes. Now, which, what's it on, by the way? How, how does one watch it? It's on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Okay. I think I just let that uh, particular subscription lapse. Um, <laughs> now, Lisa, finally, let's get your tips on what to read. And Lisa, this epic novel has been out for quite some time. Tell us why you've chosen to remind people of A House for Mr Biswas by V.S. Naipaul. Look, it has this. This novel has been out, Geraldine, since uh, it was first published in 1961. It was suggested by a very close friend of mine as a must-read because there are synergies in this book for me in terms of my own Indo-Fijian father's family growing up under British colonial Fiji and, and their struggles, and and what plays out in this story of of Mohan Biswas, a Hindu Indo-Trinidadian who strives for success but mostly fails. Um, There's certainly a pattern in this book of him making the wrong decisions that happens throughout his life. And it's, in fact, whilst it's a a bit of a dark comedy, uh, it's also a novel full of compassion into the human soul. And one, in fact, that Naipaul, you know, such an incredible writer as he is, uh, based this book on his own experience as a child growing up in Trinidad under that post-colonial time. So, Look, Mr. Bizoise, I have to say, is quite a frustrating character. Mm. Um, As was know, Naipaul, because... apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but look, this book is also funny. It's quite comical. You know, it is about sacrifice and despair, but it's also really an insight into the human condition. And the fact that it's set in, in post-colonial Trinidad and sort of partic- depicts class or caste social mm. struggles makes it really quite fascinating. The main theme, of course, in this book is really about alienation you know, which really motivates Mr Biswas to search for his own house, a place he can call home, you know, a sort of, in a sense, a sense of creating his own identity rather than that, that set upon him by others. And, of course, he spends his whole life striving, you know, 46 years of his life striving for this sort of independence. You can understand why Naipaul has, has sort of drawn his own experience from this. I think also, though, you can understand why he actually, you know, he, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature later on and I think this book was, was among others, part of what led him to win that. Yes, yes, he's very interesting to follow Naipaul's career because he died four years ago. And look, a final reading suggestion from you, Alexi. You're also looking back. It seems to be a trend with our pick guests we've noticed. That's right. I'm looking at the last novel written by Summer Locke Elliott, uh, published in 1990, called Fairyland. Um, so this is largely an autobiographical or semi-biographical autobiographical novel uh, about his growing up or coming of age in the repressive inner city Sydney of the 30s, 1930s and 1940s. Um, So the book is called Fairyland. I didn't understand it initially, but it's a play on word about the ferries, the boats going from Circular Quay to Manly. So 
you take a ferry, uh, also ferry meaning a homosexual, mm. towards a place called Manly. And the title really couldn't be more apt, I think, because of the world that the book describes, you know, what was then called camp life. It's about a real masculine presence of a homophile or same-sex attracted um, community of men, a world of desire and longing. But it's also about an imagined world that is tolerated at times, but not fully acknowledged. That's kind of lurking and sometimes very literally in the shadows. So as a historian, what I find interesting are the depictions of this lost world. So for instance, we learned that Winya train station was a notorious and busy popular beat. So a public space where same-sex attracted men could meet. Um, and that's one of the examples of the dual world that the main character, Seton Daly, a writer, inhabits. There's the possibility of intimacy, uh, in fact, surprisingly so, particularly during the Second World War, but the intimacy is always brief and the possibility of becoming more um, a more fulfilled individual through relationships is always denied. Um, just to give an example, after one really beautiful encounter, his temporary partner, half jokingly puts his fist on his jaw, signaling a sort of, you know, hey, this was fun, but if you tell anyone, you're dead. And I think this longing for more and for love is the leitmotiv of the book, and perhaps also sadly, in a way, uh, the leitmotiv of Eliot's life and the reason why he left for America in the 1940s, or, you know, why someone like Patrick White would leave for England mm. for decades. Oh, that's quite moving because he. So did that that came before "Careful He Might Hear You," which is his classic, isn't it? No, that came much later. That was oh, published later in nineteen ninety. Than... Oh, so it's it's more of a memoir in a sense, and you know, it it is it is fiction. It is a novel, but it is highly autobiographical. There are very strong parallels between his life and that of the the main character. Um, but I like to think of it, you know, as a memoir, as an artifact of a different time that can help us to reflect on our own society. And Dennis Altman wrote a short introduction to the new edition, and, and he does point this out. Eliot lived through the liberation movement of the 1970s in America, but there is still a very strong sadness to this book, you know, about the place and the fate of homosexuals, in a sense, you know, seen as second-rate citizens, but also accepting themselves as second-rate citizens. They're mm -hmm. denied full realization as human beings. And to me personally, it's, it's an important reminder of how far we have come, how lucky we are, and how great we should be to have been able to claim a place in society that can be free of shame, mm -hmm. both internal and external. Oh, thank you very much, both of you. Um, they're very interesting offerings, and I'm sure listeners will really get a lot from them. Thank you again. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Jordan. That's Lisa Singh, CEO of the Australia India Institute, and Alexi Bergantz, an historian and lecturer at RMIT and the author of French Connection. And we'll have all those uh, suggestions on our website, by the way, too. Thank you for your company. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. I'm Geraldine Duke. Bye-bye for now. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.